Welcome to Attorneys Are Human 2, Episode 12, Commercial Real Estate in a Post-COVID World, featuring Dan Lukowitz. I'm your host, Steve Wallace, with our co-host, Selena Music. Let's get right to it. Hi, Dan. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Today's, today's topic is commercial real estate in a post-COVID world. We're going to talk about a lot of great things today. So I guess the way to get started is if you could just introduce yourself to our audience, Dan. Sure, yeah. So my name is Dan Lukowitz. I'm a commercial real estate uh, investment sales broker. I specialize in uh, investment sales. What that means is that I sell assets that are typically cash flowing. Typically, they have a guarantee from a large national tenant. Most of the time, they're single tenant freestanding buildings, but I do often sell shopping centers as well. That's something that is, uh, has changed and will continue to change in the post-COVID world. My business was uh, quite a bit based on shopping centers pre-COVID, and now it's quite a bit based on uh, single-tenant medical office, automotive, essential retailers, if you will. Uh, a little bit about my background. I ran a sales department for a title insurance company for a number of years. I have a background actually in uh, nonprofit fundraising. I uh, was a development director for the largest Jewish day school here in Michigan and um, had a company called Renaissance Real Estate Ventures, which specialized in the acquisition, financing, uh, renovation, and resale of single-family residential property. At first, we were in Oakland County and the surrounding counties of Detroit, and then with this Renaissance in Detroit, we renamed the company and moved everything into the city of Detroit. Uh, a lot of fun there, a lot of cool experiences, a lot of fun stories. And uh, most recently, I was a business development executive at Amazon uh, in Detroit as well. And uh, throughout all of that time, I'd been doing my own, you know, real estate investment and house flipping on the side. And, uh, and uh, basically, we made a transition here from the house flipping into and from Amazon into commercial brokerage. And I became a full-time broker and just love every minute of it. Fabulous. I've seen you have, you have quite an online presence. Dan and I met through LinkedIn. We're currently going through a, a LinkedIn challenge. And one thing that uh, I've, I really kind of developed during the COVID lockdown is we started this podcast. We also started a YouTube channel and we've really, at least I've been really stepping up my game. Selena has a great social media game as it is, but <laughs> I've stepped it up. I'm a Gen Xer, but I'm not afraid of social media. I actually enjoy it. Awesome. He's a Gen Xer stepping into the millennial world. That's true. I think I, I may be doing the opposite. Okay, so you, you kind of provide us a, a lot of great nuggets to discuss in your introduction. So I guess the first question is, one of the things that a lot of people are saying, and this was even before post-COVID, is the Amazon effect. You were kind of inside the, the hallowed halls of Amazon, and can you just, the, the best that you can, the way you're legally allowed to do so, if you could just kind of give us your thoughts on the Amazon effect. Yeah, it's a great question. It's something I love talking about pre-COVID and something that's even more interesting during the pandemic and in this post-COVID world. So Amazon, as everyone knows, I mean, it's probably the most ubiquitous company in the world. If you look at their stock price over time, I remember when I was with the company back in 2016, they were trading at about 800 bucks a share. And uh, a year ago, they were probably around $1,600. Right now, they're just you know flying high even during the pandemic. So pre-pandemic, you know, what we saw was that as a net lease broker and as, as a net lease brokerage, what we were seeing is that the investor sentiment was to move away from typically, typically from your traditional bricks and mortar retail 
more into these Amazon proof or Amazon resistant or e-commerce resistant tenants, like your dollar stores, your dollar generals, like your automotive supply companies, like your tire stores, like your medical office buildings, even things like pet hotels, um, like PetSmart or, or a pet hotel where you know, people literally take their animal to, uh, to board it. Uh, and even into what we call experiential retail, which is a type of retail product like a trampoline park or maybe a top golf where the customer goes there and buys something, but they also experience something. What's uh, unique about all of these assets I mentioned is that these are all things you can't do online. You can't have your dog you know, bathed or groomed or boarded on Amazon. You can't get your medical treatment on Amazon. You can't jump on your trampoline or swing your golf club on Amazon you know, yet. So those were all asset classes that were very popular. And we saw a big shift in the retail space all the way up from the, the real estate investment trusts down to your, your, you know, your, your small time investment buyer, you know, five or 10 net lease properties type of person. And we really saw that accelerate over the last few years. What's interesting is that when COVID hit, obviously, we saw shutdowns all across the country, state by state by state. And it was really incredible to watch. Myself, personally, I had a deal here in Michigan. My buyer was from California. It was a six-tenant, uh, multi-tenant center in, in West Michigan, in the Grand Rapids area, which is a market that's really hot. I love the market over there. By the time he closed at the end of March, six out of six tenants were totally closed down. So what really happened, Stephen, is a great question. What really happened is that post-COVID or even now during the pandemic, these places like the gyms and like the axe throwing and like the trampoline parks, all of those things were closed and then many of them are still are closed. So all this money and all this interest that was funneling away from your you know, traditional brick and mortar retail into experiential retail, it's now swung back and it's kind of wavering. We're not really sure where it's going. I have some ideas. But Amazon really disrupted that whole segment, and then it got re-disrupted, if you will, by COVID. And now what's going on is you see that, that, that the Amazon effect is just speeding up something that we were watching for a number of years, which is the dearth of brick-and-mortar retail, specifically the, the, the death, if you will, of big box retail. You know, your 30, 40,000 square foot plus boxes are just not being built, not being opened. And, and if, if anything's going on with them, they're being cut up into smaller boxes. Yeah, so my, it's my, mother, time. my mother-in-law works at JCPenney's. So okay. I, I experience that on a daily basis. And there's a mall that's right near our office. It's called the Boynton Beach Mall. And it's a C-class mall. And they have very broad redevelopment plans. So like one of the things we're seeing a lot of here is kind of infill redevelopment of some larger yeah. enclosed malls. And I'm just curious what you're seeing in the market. So it's funny that you bring up JCPenney. I'm not sure if you're aware, but you know, Simon is one of the largest mall operators in the country. I don't yeah. know if you heard, they are in talks right now in terms of what they're going to do with JCPenney. Have you heard yeah. about what the latest idea is? I have not heard the latest. No, if you could. Amazon have fulfillment centers. Wow. That really? Makes Makes sense. No kidding. Simon stock actually jumped back up about 10 days ago when they made an announcement that they're trying to work something out where they would actually house the fulfillment centers in the vacant JCPenney's in the malls, uh, which is kind of an incredible idea because malls, as you know, are, are almost always strategically located on major arterial, you know, uh, freeway networks, which is really where that's the next step in Amazon fulfillment centers, you know, getting away from the, the major, if you will, the, the industrial areas or the areas near the, the airports, you know, over here in Michigan, we've got like Romulus or we've got over on the east side, or we've got in Detroit, 
now they're going to be in the places like, you know, JCPenney and in different malls. Interestingly enough, over here in Michigan as well, the state fairgrounds, which I can remember as a kid going to, you know, with my father, it's been vacant for a number of decades. Hmm. It was actually, there's a big development there that was done probably about 10 years ago. Magic Johnson and a group of other investors spent about $138 million in redevelopment, redeveloped part of the state fairgrounds, put a big, big mire, a nice big shopping area. It's right on the edge of Detroit and some of the other suburbs. And just last week, actually, the Sterling Group and I believe Ross Pro Jr.'s company uh, purchased from Wayne County the entire rest of the state fairgrounds. And the first tenant that they're putting in there, Amazon Fulfillment Center. Wow. It just, yeah. makes, it just makes sense. Do you think that this is, I, I guess, COVID pushed, but I, I call it the death of malls. Just because at least I know a ton of people like myself or maybe in my age group but I don't go to the mall. I order everything so I hate online. it. I hate it. It's I hate the, it. That's a really interesting question. <laughs> and, and I think that the answer is a little bit more complicated than that because what really, what people don't realize is that back in, I think, I think it was the 60s and 70s, the government was really subsidizing developers to build malls and kind of invigorate, and I would say accelerate is a better word, urban sprawl. So there was a ton of money put into mall development all over the country. And really over the last several decades, we've kind of just been overbuilding malls. So pre-Amazon effect and definitely pre-COVID, we were seeing an overabundance of malls and many of them were closing. You have these huge malls where the main anchor and tenant, which could be maybe 20% of the GLA, the gross leasable area um, in the building is just dark. And now with the Amazon effect and COVID and all that, you've already got a problem that was created in the 60s and 70s and was just pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And then you had Amazon coming in and then you had people kind of moving away from those areas. And then you had the pandemic. And now it's like, yeah, we'll see. Now what's happening? The fulfillment centers are going in the malls. Yeah, it, it makes sense. And now, most millennials there, there, order everything online. <laughs> there is an experiential component, though, I will say that you can't get online. So what we're also noticing over the last several years is a lot of major mall developers are turning towards an experiential mall concept where you go to the mall. If you look like, here's a great example. The same Mall of America, uh, the, same, the Mall of America owners built what's called, gosh, the name's escaping me, American Dream. American Dream is a huge mall in New Jersey. If you ever drive by it on the turnpike, it's like mind-boggling. You see this huge mall and you see this insane structure that slopes upwards. It's actually a ski hill inside the mall. So that's an experiential mall concept that's been pushed over the last few years. Interestingly enough, not a lot of people know this, but because the same owner owns American Dream and Mall of America, they have cross-collateralized, as far as I understand, they've cross-collateralized oh, wow. those two assets, right? You see where I'm going with this? And American Dream was scheduled to open, I think, my, my bones are chilling right now, scheduled to open like mid-March. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. They're yeah. Right. They, they have approved something. a huge... They approved a huge development that's supposed to be bigger than the Mall of America, West Miami-Dade, Northwest Miami-Dade. It's okay. like a huge project. And since COVID, there hasn't been a, any mention of it. I, I grew up in Syracuse in upstate New York. And so we have a huge mall also. It's called Destiny USA. And that's another okay. one where I went to visit it a couple of years ago when I went back to Syracuse. And they have like this like... Uh, ropes course inside there they have like water slides i mean so so i did see that that's kind of the the, the shift in for sure correct and in, in aventura they have this giant i mean it's really the only reason I, I i go that and and restaurants but they have this huge slide 
and and it's awesome and i think to be perfectly honest ever since they put in the slide i i think that's more it's more of a reason for my nephews to want me to take them before they were like oh we don't want to go to the mall <laughs> yeah and you know what i'll tell you is that the bottom line is is there's a lot of there's a lot going on right now without even getting into the politics or without even getting into the science there's a lot going on in the world right now the one thing I do know for sure, at least that I have a strong feeling, is that as humans, we're very social beings. And as much as we try to, as much as right now we're being pushed to do this behind our Zoom cameras and to work you know, from our basements or our, our studies or our kids' rooms or this or that, at the end of the day, human beings do crave social interaction. And that's not really something that we can get completely to the same extent on LinkedIn. And that void can't be filled by impulse purchasing or one-click one buying on Amazon. So at the end of the day, the, I, I do believe that experiential retail is a saving grace that will help retail survive as long or as best as it can in this country. I believe restaurants as well, even though right yes. now you yeah. know, people are a little apprehensive to go to restaurants. People love going out to eat. And, and you've seen some of my posts about the small format. Yeah. It's, a, it's incredible what's going on in the restaurant space in terms of contactless options. And again, that's also something that interestingly enough, Stephen, was, was in play pre pandemic all of the, the the major chains not just in the in qsr and quick service restaurant but even in pharmacy like walgreens walgreens has a new format they've got two ones called the cooper concept and the other one I, I don't know if it's a micro pharmacy or something we're talking like 2500 square foot walgreens same mm -hmm. thing taco bell as i posted today they've got they went from i think like a 25 or 2700 square foot format to a 1350 foot square uh, format that's all, that was all in play pre-COVID, and now it's just being accelerated, which to me is like, I mean, I've got a lot of questions, you know what I'm saying? But at the same time, it's fascinating that all these things that were in motion are really being pushed on hyperdrive uh, to the finish line right now because of what's going on in the world. I have a lot of questions about Taco Bell, but not necessarily <laughs> the real estate aspect of it. We want to know, is that really meat? <laughs> it could be beyond meat. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> So if you could elaborate a little bit, you were, you were touching upon the shift in the restaurant industry. So well, I mean, specifically in quick service or in general, or just in, just a, a general question. You could, you could go to, you could start with quick service and then maybe go into a little bit more of a broad analysis. So it's interesting. I actually serendipitously had a, an interaction with someone who works for one of the major pizza chains over the weekend. And we had a conversation. He told me, I can't really repeat too much, at least not in his name, but there's so much that's been going on again been going on for a decade now it's in hyperdrive in terms of artificial intelligence in terms of uh, autonomous vehicles in terms of, of of smartphone usage and delivery that is integrating into quick service restaurant you know many of the the national chains are doing what i think to be in my humble opinion a mistake which is they're getting in bed with these aggregators so they're getting in bed with the door dashes they're getting in bed with the uber eats which is fascinating because these are companies that by and large, quality control and standardization of processes, that's what they live by. And then they're just shipping it out to another company to take care of all the rest of the delivery and the fulfillment of the order, if you will. Now, I'm speaking like an Amazonian. So in, in that regard, a lot of the chains are doing that, but some of them are saying, no, we want to keep everything in-house. There's a very specific pizza chain that does this. They own their entire logistics and supply chain you know, you can literally order on your phone. I'm not going to say who. You can order on your phone. And they, they even have autonomous vehicles that can stock 50 pizzas, taking the pizzas and delivering them to your house. Mm. So QSR is kind of bifurcated right now 
many of the, the, the companies are saying, well, people want to sit at home on their computers or on their phones in order to do DoorDash. And other companies are saying, wait a minute, A, we don't want to give up control. B, we don't want to give up that potential revenue. And, and C, you know, we don't believe that, that you know, as a company, it's in our best interest to go with these aggregators. So I like really DoorDash, but they're expensive. And, and from what I understand, my, my conversations, we have a bunch of clients that are kind of mom and pop type of restaurants, yeah. and they're really diving into the revenue. For sure. And, and that's why that's another reason it doesn't necessarily make sense. Now, what's going on in the actual restaurant itself is even more fascinating because you've got this whole idea of a, of a, of a frictionless experience, a better customer experience decreased timing in the drive-through from the time that a person pulls in to the time that they come out, better traffic flows. Incidentally, certain cities pre-pandemic were outlawing the construction of, of drive-throughs because they thought that it was bad for, for traffic, bad for the bike lanes, bad for pedestrians. Today, we're seeing exactly the opposite. I don't have to tell you, I mean, you've got whole parts of Miami where they're closing off the streets so that people can eat dinner outside. And same thing here in Michigan, which is cool. We'll see how it lasts when the weather changes. But what's interesting is that the quick service restaurant experience is becoming much quicker. It's becoming much less interdependent with the actual restaurant. Now you can order on your phone, pull into the drive-thru, grab your stuff and go. You know, so it's, it, there's a lot that's changing. And I think this whole idea of contactless experiences is going to be pushed quite far. It's going to be quite interesting to see. You know, I, I predict that in the next few years, you can go to your Sonic or your McDonald's or whatever you pull up just like you're pulling up at a bank, you know, you, you order ahead and then, you know, the, the happy meal or whatever comes down in a little tube, you take it out, you drive away, no contact whatsoever with anybody. Further, look at Sonic. I posted yesterday, Sonic has a new concept they just rolled out. I think they have one built in South Carolina, if I'm not mistaken, where they have yard games and they have outdoor seating areas. Again, what are they trying to do, Stephen? Experiential quick service restaurant, same thing. They don't want you to be able to sit home and get DoorDash. They want you to come there to buy more and to have that experience. Very exciting times in quick service restaurant. Um, it is. Now, Do you find that it's cutting into employment opportunities? There's a downfall with, with that as well. I disagree. There's, there is a perceived downfall. Now, this is a whole nother schmooze, a whole nother topic we could talk about. But if you look at artificial intelligence, I personally believe that with AI, the, 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 proliferation, the proliferation of AI, you're going to see a decrease in the number of jobs. However, if you look historically over the last several hundred years, the more advanced we get as a tool-making society, which is really what, in my opinion, humans are, are best designed to make tools, right? If yes. you look at other species, they can travel more efficiently than us. They can move more efficiently than us. We but are creators. But if you put a human being on a bicycle, we outperform any animal, right? And that's an interesting analogy. So what I think is going to happen is you are going to see that a lot of jobs are going to be lost by, by automation and by artificial intelligence. But at the end of the day, because we're going to be able to produce more per human, so to speak, there really will be, in my opinion, less of a need to work. And again, that's a whole other direction we can go into. And then you've experienced that in your hometown, in your home state, in Michigan, with the auto industry, oh, yeah. it's been automated. And I don't know if you heard, heard but, you know, the train station, the old train station that was purchased by one of the major auto companies a couple of years ago, I said, let's buy real estate along Michigan Avenue in that part of Detroit because it's going to boom. 
And I said, it's only a matter of time between before they build up, build a, like a, a mass transit between downtown Detroit and Ann Arbor, sorry, downtown Detroit and Dearborn, where the other part of, 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 of the headquarters is. And just, I think it was last week or the week before, there was an announcement that the first autonomous freeway in the country is being built in Detroit, Michigan from the train station all the way to Ann Arbor. Hmm. So it, for sure, it's going to be, it's amazing. It's exciting. Wow. Interesting. So I guess yeah. our next question would be, so you mentioned that you are an investment sales broker. Could you yeah. tell our listeners what that is? And, you know, we, all, we have a lot of folks that are interested real estate investors or interested in real estate. And, could, and, and just my follow-up question to that would be, how does one become that? Oh, great. Good. I love that. Great question. So the, the first part, the answer to, to part A of your question, what is an investment sales broker? The answer is that's specifically a broker who deals with cash flowing investments that are purchased by someone who merely is buying the cash flow. So if I were to sell either of you, let's say a Walgreens or a McDonald's, you're not really buying it for the appreciation. You're not really buying it because you think it's beautiful architecture. You're not buying it because you want to put another tenant in there. You're buying it because you believe in McDonald's or you believe in Walgreens or you believe in Amazon, whoever's renting the property, and you're buying it. You're essentially buying a bond. You're buying the, the lease guarantee and you're buying the subsequent cash flow that comes in your mailbox every month or in your, your ACH into your checking account every month. And in even more specifically, the vast majority of our sales are actually what we call absolute triple net properties, which means that you as the landlord have zero landlord responsibilities. Tenant pays for taxes, tenant pays for insurance, tenant pays for common area maintenance, tenant pays for the roof, the structure, the landscaping, the snow, everything. True Something mailbox money, money, right? True mailbox money. Apps, the most passive form of real estate investment there is. We love Obviously, mailbox money on this show. Love it, right? And, and the returns are going to be lower than, let's say, a multifamily uh, complex in the city of Detroit where you know, somebody might get a 15, 20, 25% return on their investment. Here you might be in the five, six, sevens, eight, 9% return, but you've got annual escalations built into your lease, sometimes as much as 3% annually, which really compounds over time. And you've got an, as passive of an investment as possible. So that's, that's what an investment sales broker does. So we, we help facilitate, whether it's through private investors or real estate investment trusts, funds, family offices, we facilitate the buying and selling many times off market of those types of assets. We like so all market deals on this show also. Well, we should talk, <laughs> and then we should talk offline, okay? We like all so, money deals. <laughs> right, exactly. So that's the answer to part A of your question. Part B, how does one become an investment sales broker? Well, what's interesting is, is that the license to be an investment sales, I should say real estate salesperson, because that's the technical title, is the same as becoming a residential agent. So if you have your residential uh, license or if you're interested in getting it, the process is exactly the same. You hang your license under a broker and you get to work. Um, in terms of the actual process, it's, it's not rocket science. It's a lot of databasing. It's a lot of research. It's a lot of demographic study and it's a lot of cold calling. You know, I, I typically make about a thousand calls a, a month. So about 250 calls a week just to drum up new business. And then it's learning the industry and studying the industry. And, and you know, I, really, I love it. I, I think it's something that pretty much anyone can do from pretty much anywhere. I typically don't meet my clients. I don't go to my buildings. I don't meet my sellers. And I don't attend the closings. Um, everything is done remotely, which is quite incredible. Sounds great to me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. 
So can I ask you, okay, because I, we meet, we meet realtors all the mm-hmm. time and a lot of them tend to tell us that they're struggling in the business because it's not an easy business. I, I always tell Steven, I feel like they don't know where to start like where to start. People typically come to our office and say, yeah, well, I'm, I just got my real estate license and I want to go off into selling million dollar deals. Mm-hmm. Right. So what would you tell someone who is of that mentality? Find a mentor, plain and simple. Find a mentor and do everything they tell you at whatever cost it is. Because why reinvent the wheel? This is, this is pretty much a textbook game. I mean, obviously you have to you have to be charismatic. You have to know how to negotiate deals. But in general, if you find a mentor who's willing to give you the time and attention, cleave to them, do whatever they say. And after a year or two, if you're not making a good income, you're doing something wrong. It's not a hard profession. It's not, you don't need to be a genius. You don't need to have any money. I mean, you have, you know, you, there are some small expenses, but the number one thing I would say is don't expect to become a millionaire overnight and don't do it alone. What's some advice that your mentor gave you when you were first starting? Well, a couple things. Number one, he said, don't ever talk to anybody about your deals. Even if they're in the office, even if they're a colleague, don't ever talk to anybody because when people hear too much about their deal, your deals, they want to get involved. He also told me whenever you do make a deal with someone like a working arrangement, always make sure it's fair because even if you think you're getting the better part of the deal, people always know when they're being taken advantage of. I thought that was interesting advice. And then this is kind of a technical piece of advice for my profession. And I think any investment sales broker out there will appreciate this. He actually told me that what he learned from his mentor 20 years ago was that if you want to figure out how much money you need to make in a given year, take that number. So let's say you want to make $300,000 in a year. Take that number, divide it into three. So put into three buckets, 100, 100, 100. What you need is you need $100,000 of proposals. So $100,000 of proposals you've given out to owners saying, this is what your building's worth. Consider listing with me. $100,000 of listings. So here's $100,000 of listings. And by the way, I mean commission coming from those deals. So $100,000 of commission that would come from the proposals you have out. $100,000 of commission that would come from the listings that you have on the market. And $100,000 of commission that would come from all the deals you have in escrow. And as you move through that process, don't think, oh, I've got $200,000 in escrow. I'm going to focus on that. No, no, no. Always build that pipeline because you're always going from bucket to bucket to bucket, bucket to bucket to bucket. And that's been great advice. I think that's, that is probably the best piece of advice I've received in the industry. One of the things we also handle in our office is bankruptcy. And so unfortunately, we have a lot of bankruptcies that we've done for folks in the real estate business, whether it's a real estate investor, a real estate developer, and we've had our share of brokers. And the one thing that I always tell them is a lot of brokers that we know is because it's Miami and everything's flashy. It's a little different than the Midwest. A lot of brokers, their money is spent as soon as that contract is signed. And so I'm always telling them they need to be conservative with their finances. 100%. And those, they're repeat clients for us. Yes, they live in La Vida Loca. You have to, you know, pretty much every real estate investment sales broker is a 1099 employee. So I don't have a pension plan. I don't have an employer-sponsored 401k. But, you know, thankfully I've learned that you have to earmark a certain amount of every check, A, for retirement, and B, for expenses. Because 
just because I close a deal today, doesn't, I might not close another one for six months and I'm going to have expenses, whether it's drone photographs, marketing material, paying an assistant or an admin, databasing, CRM, this subscription, that subscription. So you always have to put money away from your commission into your retirement and then also into your, your future expenses for your business. So one of the other things that I know, one of the other asset classes that I know you have a lot of experience about, we've talked a lot about retail and restaurants, but one of the hottest asset classes that I see right now and that I predict you know, for the next five years is the industrial slash warehouse class. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, again, industrial was super underrated, but also super hot pre-pandemic. If you look back last summer, I believe it was around this time last year, Blackstone, which I'm sure everyone who's listening has heard of, Blackstone purchased an industrial-only portfolio. If my memory serves me correct, it was $19.6 or $19.7 billion. And by the way, when you're talking about billions, the number after the point is actually significant. So it was either $19.6 or $19.7 billion, largest portfolio in history of industrial-only assets. And it was, uh, a lot of it was cold storage, which is used for like grocery. And a lot of it was last mile fulfillment, which as you can imagine is always in irreplaceable real estate because it's the last mile before the product is delivered. So I like to say that if you want to study a trend in real estate, always look at what the big money is doing because what the big money is doing is what the small money is going to be doing and what the rest of the market is going to do over time. So Interestingly enough, they actually chopped up that portfolio pre-closing and pieced it off a little bit and then kept what they wanted and made a ton of money. So I, I saw this happening last year and I said, gosh, it's the time to pivot into the industrial space. And I started getting interested, more interested in you know, your FedExes and your FedEx Expresses, FedEx Grounds, your Amazon Fulfillment Centers, your DHLs, things like that. Because as I've mentioned, products are coming off of shelves and they're going into warehouses more so than any time in history. So I think that we'd be myopic to think that what we see right now in terms of the boom in, 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 in industrial space and in fulfillment, in cold storage and last mile, last mile fulfillment is, is it. I mean, this is just the beginning. There's a tidal wave coming, um, whether it's re repurposing and repositioning JCPenney's in malls or you know old Toys R Us's or it's building ground up all over at the state fairgrounds or right outside of major airports, it's, it's happening. I'm dealing with the deal right now, actually. It's in your neck of the woods, I can't say where, but it's outside of a major airport. And that's a development deal to put an Amazon fulfillment center there. You take that dirt and you put a warehouse, which by the way, warehouses are relatively cheap to construct yeah. and, and relatively simple and have relatively small turnover costs compared to cutting up a box, unless you're talking about like cold storage. But you put a tenant in there like an Amazon or a FedEx and your cap rate, your capitalization rate, which is which in turn is a factor um, of, of your net operating income and your sale price. So the lower the cap rate, the higher the sale price goes. The cap rate goes way down. The sale price goes way up. And, you know, these developers who are turning dirt into fulfillment centers, they're just I mean, that, that that's like turning dirt into gold. Okay, great. Well, we're going to we're going to pivot a little bit and we're going to start okay. shifting to to pop culture. Selena, you want to start our pop culture inquiry of Dan? Uh-oh. Oh, yes, I actually do. Okay. I have this one question. When you were a teenager, who was your celebrity crush? And who is it now? Oh, no. Yeah. So, for sure, for sure, without thinking, definitely Topanga from Boy Meets World. Like, no uh, question. Oh, my okay. God. 
And who it is now, I don't know. Like Beyonce's in the other room working. I mean, it could still be Topanga. Right. I I actually met her once in New York City in Soho. She looked just like in the show. And it was a lot years later. I don't know. I mean, you guys, that really caught me off guard. Um, (laughs) That's what we like to do on Attorneys Are Human, too. I guess so. Now you're showing that brokers are human because we blush like (laughs) crazy. Um, I don't know. It's a great question. That's a really great question. Okay. Can I take a pass on that one? You, you can take a pass. Yeah. If, if, you, if you think of something, let us know. Okay, so <laughs> here's, my, here's my other question. It's a very random one. If you had to go live on an island, mm. what tool would you bring with you that was absolutely necessary for your survival? My smartphone, because I could get anything I wanted. Just a smartphone. Yeah, well, you gave me one tool, right? Yeah, but you're That's on it. an island. That's, I'm sure Uber's gonna have helicopters by then. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, okay, okay. Steven, do you have any? I do, I do. First question, which is kind of pop culture, but slightly political, and it, and it involves Amazon, the Amazon effect. Should we save the post office and why or why not? Ooh. I don't know. That's a tough question. I mean, it's yes. a really like tough question. Workers. Yeah. I, I mean, here's the thing. I, I firmly believe oh, that Joe Amazon would be out of a job. So we want to save the, we want to save the post. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, the, the thing is those, I, I firmly believe that Amazon is, is on a quest to put out, put companies like FedEx and UPS out of business. I mean, and that's proven by the fact that they've, you know, their investment in autonomous vehicles is huge. They're going to have autonomous semis driving. They already have their own, logistics. So I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I hate to say this, but I don't necessarily see a need in the future, let's say five years down the right down the line for a UPS, a FedEx, a USPS and an Amazon. I think there's gonna be a consolidation. Okay. So I would say, yeah, have it, have Amazon by, by the post office. That's the answer. Okay. I'm going <laughs> to ask you one more and then I'll do the lightning round. Cause I haven't done the lightning round in a couple episodes and our lightning round is going to be all Detroit. Oh, all right. So my my last question is, who is the GOAT? Michael Jordan or LeBron James and why? (laughs) Oh, the GOAT, the greatest of all time? Yep. Oh, I was for sure Michael Jordan, no question about it. I'm in the middle of watching The Last Dance. I mean, actually, I I don't even, I don't binge watch it. I will only watch one episode at a time because it is so good. I want to savor it. And the best thing about it is watching The Bad Boys. That's I just, I love it. And watching... Oh, the, the NBA of that generation is not like nothing we'll ever see again. And I think that Michael Jordan was a statesman. Michael Jordan was a charismatic, caring individual. Michael Jordan was someone who just, he saw a challenge and he didn't care. I mean, you've you got games where the Bulls were down by double digits and he just said, forget this, I'm stepping it up. And then you have, you know, the, I think one of the greatest moments I've seen in Michael Jordan in this series that, that I'm watching is when Phil Jackson told him, Michael, you got to start hitting Paxson. You got to start getting the ball out there. You got to bring the whole team in because everyone was saying Michael is the greatest scorer of all time. Michael is a performer. Michael doesn't win championships like Magic or Larry. And Michael totally changed his game because Phil Jackson told him to. And that love—that's what we call hero ball in the in the vernacular, for sure. And I mean, I don't. I, Michael. Another thing is, with the exception of the Wizards, with which. You know, by the way, that I love the fact that he played for the Wizards because I, I saw him play one time in my life, 
And that's when he came out of retirement and played for the Wizards. But he wouldn't even breathe without Phil Jackson. I mean, the level of commitment that that man had to his team and to his coach was uncanny. uncanny. It was unbelievable. Well, that was, that's an excellent one. I'm going to ask one more question. Yeah. So what show, are you, what show during uh, COVID were you binge watching? Oh, what show was I binge watching? Oh, gosh, what was it? There were a few. I don't remember. There was one that was really, really good. Oh, Tiger King. Yep. That, out, that, that was the most perfectly timed yep. release of a documentary ever. Okay, so I'm going to have one follow-up question, then we'll go to the lighting round. Do you think that Carol yes. Baskin yes, killed her Yes, she for sure. Okay. Uh, you didn't even have to ask, ask the question. He said that with absolute certainty. <laughs> right, absolute for certainty. Sure. Yes, she did. You know sure. what the bones are bare? I was there. <laughs> I, I saw her. Okay, so now we're going to go to the lightning round. It's this or that. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, okay. before the lightning round, I do want to know this. Just because I was watching Jumanji, and then I watched Fast and the Furious. <laughs> okay? Ooh. I'm a car who, guy. So who, who, do, who do you like better, Dwayne The Rock Johnson or Vin Diesel? I mean... I, I, Fast and the Furious was just, that's, it was a game-changing movie. I love that I, movie. Yeah. There's no thought involved in that movie at all. The, the one thing I'll tell you, though, is that somebody from Detroit, is a, I'm a big-time car buff. The one thing I don't like about Fast and the Furious is there's so many cars today that are literally, they cost five or ten times as much money as they would have had the Fast and the Furious not been produced. Ah. Oh, that's true. Interesting. Like a Toyota Supra, for example. Mm. Hmm. But I didn't, I didn't even think of that. But but what about? I mean, you, you, I'm comparing him to Dwayne Johnson, like The Rock. And, and they they shared the screen together, so you didn't yes. ask the question, Dad. Oh, who do I like better? I mean, yeah. I, I like the, the movie. Truth is, I never saw Jumanji, but I mean, no, I we, don't we want to know. Do you like The Rock or Vin Diesel better? Oh, pro I don't. I I happen to really like Vin Diesel. I, I just he's got really? this. He's got this, his voice is freaking so cool. I love it. Okay. Boy, boy, his, his performance in Boiler Room brought a tear to my eye. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good movie. Yeah. Okay, so now, now it's, it's, it's lightning round time, Detroit style. First question, Isaiah Thomas or Dennis Rodman? Definitely Isaiah, yeah. Okay. Eminem or James Brown? Eminem, come on. Detroit deep dish pizza or Chicago deep dish pizza? Chicago. Ooh. I'm honest. Okay. Detroit Red Wings or Detroit Tigers? Pistons. Okay. Swerve. Okay. Best portrayal of Detroit. Detroit Rock City or Motown's Greatest Hits? You know, I didn't see either of them, honestly. So I can't say, but I would probably say Motown's greatest hits. Okay, last, last, last question is Matthew McConaughey or James Brown? It, Matthew McConaughey's from Detroit? No, but he was in Detroit Rock City, so I forever <laughs> But we're going to make an exception on that one. All right, so we'll go with James Brown then. Okay, fair enough. Okay, Dan, if you could per let us know how we can find you, your website, your social media accounts, because I know you have a very vast online presence, and this was great. Thank you for being open and honest and playing along with our silly, ridiculous questions. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun, guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. 
my username is Dan Lukowitz, D-A-N, last name L-E-W-K-O-W-I-C-Z. It's really the only uh, social media presence that I have is on LinkedIn. Our website as a company is FortisNetLease.com, F-O-R-T-I-S-N-E-T-L-E-A-S-E.com. And send me a message on LinkedIn and I'll get back to you. And, and I'm, I'm happy to help in any way that I can, whether it's referrals, you know, a good joke or just, you know, some, some advice in the industry. Or if you have a building to sell or you want to buy, I'm happy to help you that way too. Well, I can tell Fantastic. you, he really knows, he really knows it's stuff. It's, it's a pleasure to, to really experience your great, vast industry knowledge. And again, we'd love to have you on in the future. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Attorneys Are Human Too. Please subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast host. Please also leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to seeing you next time.